This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast aimed not at the 1%, but, I don't know, maybe at the top 42% of the intellectually wealthy. Our topic today is class critiques in today's movies and TV, prompted by the phenomenal popularity of the Korean show Squid Game. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, who would definitely die before successfully cutting out an umbrella-shaped cookie. This is Lawrence Weir coming from Oklahoma City, who would die playing red light, green light. Absolutely, definitely. You would not have even gotten past the first one. I wouldn't have even played the game, but I would definitely die at, at first stage. Turning and running. That was that was really fair. That's it. I'm, I'm gone. I'm a goner. I wouldn't even turn successfully. I'm gone. My name is Sarah Lynn Breck. I am a writing professor and novelist. And I don't think that my writing skills would come in handy in Squid Game at all, especially not red light, green light. <laughs> Hello, I am Michelle Paranello Kaysen. I study rhetoric and I teach English and literature to homeschooling students. And I would have died of anxiety before we even got to the first game. So, actually, I wasn't. I wasn't implying that I would actually get to that. I was going to say you're the only one who's making it to the carving out umbrellas. <laughs> That's it. Just <laughs> struck me as a particularly <laughs> nasty thing to have to do. Man, so uh, this is a very wide open topic, Lawrence. We were on partially examined life talking about. Derek Bell talking about critical race theory just a few months ago and got to talking that since you're an actual entertainment writer for the New York Times and you've been on shows with me like three, four times, five times, but never actually talked about anything in the entertainment world. So it was about damn time. We did not. You had suggested Halloween, specifically like racial horror kind of stuff, get out, things like that. There's always new things in that. And I said, well, you know, we've had the squid game thing that's also floating around. Is there any way we can just jam these topics together and make it just in general about social commentary in very recent media. My thesis going into this is sort of like it is with social commentary songs that I'm pretty cynical that anyone's hearts and minds have been changed about these things. And to the extent that with a literary form specifically, if you're just like showing how awful things are and that message gets through, Well, that's great, but that's not necessarily entertaining. Those are the movies you don't want to see. Those are not the funny, scary. Those are the dreadfully, like, the awfulness of life. Like, I know this is terrible. It's been very tricky. I think Parasite was maybe a good exception of something that was realistic, but yet also exciting. You know, you actually wanted to be experiencing this. So that was kind of just the thing to throw out. Who wants to kind of start bouncing off that or give your opening thesis? I don't care who starts. Well, let me go ahead and just start right now and say, I think you're absolutely wrong. So when it comes to (laughs) songs, songs, yes, I do have questions about whether or not songs will be effective in moving the hearts and minds of people. But when it comes to Get Out, that absolutely did. When it comes to Parasite, that did. When it comes to really, really successful horror films, now, not all of them are going to be successful. Like Get Out is really kind of unique in what it does. But when it comes to really successful films done by really talented filmmakers who know what they're doing and use their talents to their strengths, it can absolutely be a game changer. So I'm going to say that I think you're wrong, but I'm going to say it with love in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I've taught Dorian Linsky's book, 33 Revolutions Per Minute. That's like a collection of protest songs through history. Mm. And it's been a really interesting. And I've taught it to a group of college students and a group of high school students. And most of them we're not familiar with most of the songs that we were covering. So they were kind of looking at them out of place and out of time. And they were sort of these markers of history rather than these calls to action, right? So that's the first thing that came to mind when you compared it to like protest songs and songs that are trying to make a change. And I feel like there's something similar in that you can be effective as a protest song without changing the hearts and minds of opponents because you could be effective by kind of drumming up the hope and the anger and whatever emotions you need to cause action for the people who are on your side, who already agreed with that and like giving them the tools they need to do something with it. That's a very good point. Yeah. And and I wonder too, like, because I've been looking at all of these different forms of media that have explored class, but it always seems like the most effective forms are the ones where you see a cross section of class with race, class with gender, class with education level, and how that kind of resonates with what we're seeing today, which is why I think Get Out especially was such a breakout hit. 
All right, let me revise my opening thesis. Oh, he's gotten beat up now, so now he's changing his when mind. I, when, Already? I, when I developed this idea about protest songs, it was my gut teenage reaction to hearing songs like, sign, sign, everywhere, sign, walking up the seat, like, which seemed like... I honestly don't know that song. I don't, I don't know. You did not listen to terrible uh, classic rock radio as a child. No, did not. Something. No, I, was, I, was, I am wearing a, a Wu-Tang t-shirt. From, it's, I know it's on a visual medium. I don't listen to that. That you can have that. That's you. That's you thing. I think probably in any art form, if you pick a curated list, so this 33 and a third book is probably like the song Imagine. That certainly captures something. The song Mercy, Mercy, Mercy Me. Like, you know, the whole Marvin Gaye thing. There you go. You know, there's a reason. What's going on? There's a reason why those persist to this day and are just, you know, they're great as songs. And having something that is not merely a love song, you know, having something substantial to talk about all the better. That said, once that becomes a trend, once Get Out was out there, then inevitably you have a slew of imitators such that when you think of like, what's the average movie that is like this? Probably something with a fairly low level of quality in social critique is what comes up. So I think we're emphasizing different things when I say, as a whole, when I think about this, like I find a lot of these things that were on our potential watch list. Squid Game is the only thing I said we all should definitely watch that. And I should say, for listeners, we're not going to spoil the ending to that right away. If you haven't seen it before, that's fine. I was just about to spoil it. Like, I was just about to spoil it right now. <laughs> Let's like, a wait. few seconds from now, I was going to spoil it, but I'll stop that. Thank you for letting me know what the parameters are. I was about to, like, the next thing I was going to be like, you know, can you believe it? But I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm holding back. Go ahead. So, Michelle, you had suggested independently sort of reality show horror as its own topic, which... I can't think of a really good entry of that. What can you kind of say? What was the great appeal of that? And some of it's just personal that I keep watching these. What a friend of mine has deemed like fishbowl horror, where mm. you've all like taken a collection of people from various, usually who don't know each other very well, and tossed them together into some horrible, you know, arena. And then we as viewers are like, let's watch them get out of this. Definitely Squid Games, not like Cabin in the Woods. There's a not very good movie called Would You Rather that is definitely in this genre. No, I enjoy Would You Rather. It's low budget, but I love low budget movies. But yes, I enjoyed that. Also, what's that? It, they just had a sequel. It's like a, a game where people are... Uh, escape Room. Escape Room. Yeah, Escape Room is solidly in that genre. Yeah, the platform kind of, but it's certainly class conscious, right? No, no. The platform is definitely one of those. And also, there's a, I know at least one Black Mirror episode. Yes, that is along those lines as well. I mean, so that is a solid horror entry. Like that is absolutely a genre of horror that has been utilized quite frequently to great success. I would argue you don't like would you weather, but I do. I still watched it. And I like, it left me thinking all of them leave me thinking like, even when I'm like, eh, I don't know if that was executed very well, but I think that it pulls on your own voyeurism, right? Like it's very much turns it back at you. And like, why are you watching this? Like, why are you watching these people be tortured? What separates you from the game makers who put these people in this position for their entertainment if you're only watching it for your entertainment? And so I think that that is one of the elements of this genre that fascinates me the most. Like, what is it calling on us as viewers to do? Are we watching it so that we can feel like we've like, oh, well, I'm watching this and agreeing that it's a problem. So now I'm no longer complicit. Or is it inviting us into the systems that have put this in place and been like, ah, are you just getting entertainment out of them? And by that fact, making us even more complicit in it. Like, are we supposed to do something with that information? I mean, even aside from horror movies, there are also mainstream movies like Hunger Games and Running Man, you know, that have absolutely hit something with us culturally. But I love that question of whether or not we're complicit in being entertained by this, which I think the answer is yes. Well, the fact that it's not real, I think, is supposed to be the thing. Like any horror movies or, you know, that just general theory of tragedy of, you know, Aristotle, to throw out the first fancy name here, but just that you experience these things vicariously so that you don't have to experience them in real life in a way. But going back to her idea, like there's an entire genre of Asian films where people are put together and one by one they die off, which is kind of a format that the Hunger Games, there's a Japanese movie where it was an original movie and there's a sequel where they do this with kids and they pick them off one by one. I forgot the name of it. Mark is probably Googling it now. It sounds like The Long Walk by Stephen mm -hmm. King. Oh, that is, no, that's another one in this genre that's for one sure of them. though. That's one of them, but, but it's not Battle a long Royale? walk. Battle Royale? 
Battle Royale, that's it. Yes. There we oh go. Oh my God, I love you. We need to be talking more. <laughs> yes. There's an entire genre of film. If you go into the Asian film history, there's an entire genre of film and TV shows that kind of play off of this. And so the question becomes like, why is that there? What's going on? What kind of messages are they, are they talking? And really, as I was thinking about what she was saying a few moments ago, I was thinking about the torture porn thing that was happening for five years about at the beginning of the century, where why are we watching that? Like, like, what are we getting from that? And oftentimes that is a collection of people who are put together from disparate kind of backgrounds and they're forced to go through these really kind of terrible ordeals. And it kind of harkens back to what Squid Game is doing, what these other films are doing, which raise really interesting questions about why do we like those things and why were those so popular? There's an independent appeal in And Then There Were None when you have a specific number of contestants or people in the mystery or whatever that you know, and they establish them as characters and kill them off one by one. It's mathematically satisfying in a way that it's not if it's just like a small town is being hunted by something and the next day somebody turns up dead and the next day somebody else turns up because there's just it's too vast. There's something really satisfying about a small number of people. This is completely apart from like whether there's a social commentary element at all, but uh, <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Well, and with that in mind, like when we're watching it, I mean, just because of the way the narrative works, we're always kind of putting ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist. But, you know, we're not all Katniss Everdeen. Most of us are the unnamed District 4 person that <laughs> dies in scene one. Like, <laughs> You know, it's funny you mentioned that. So, Lawrence, you mentioned The Hunt, I think. Mm-hmm. Anybody else seen that? Mm-mm. So this is one where I will spoil a little bit where they don't let you get in the, in the shoes of the protagonist because they don't reveal who the protagonist is. Until about 15, 20 minutes in. Yeah, because you start off with one protagonist and that person dies. You go to another protagonist, that person dies. Yeah. Yes. Like the people that they advertise were the stars of the movie die almost instantly. And it is hilarious that they subverted the genre in this particular way. The movie as a whole. eh. It certainly was not effective social commentary at all. It was sort of playing with the whole idea of social commentary. The fact that it's, you know, a supposed group of liberal elites that are hunting conservatives and this, you know, raised the ire of Trump and other people who had not seen the movie, didn't know anything about it. And the whole even internal dynamic of the film is heads of companies were joking about this. Their joke leaked out on social media or something like that. They all had to quit. So they decided to start doing it for real as a revenge against the world, against these stupid people, you know, and so the people that they kidnap are specifically the ones who had posted on social media about them doing this before they were actually doing it. So it is a convoluted, I don't feel bad spoiling it that way because it's, unless you're a certain kind of fan, it's probably not worth your time. I was about to say that you just completely spoiled (laughs) that entire movie, like the complete twist, everything you spoiled it. I'm going to disagree with Mark. I don't know why I'm disagreeing with Mark so much today because we usually get along very well. But I completely disagree with you, Mark, because I think it is a wonderful movie to watch. I think that it is. Now, you have to like the horror genre. You have to kind of not be grossed out by like, that's not too much. There's a little bit of gore and people die, people blow up, whatever. Now, the social commentary doesn't quite work. But as far as the entertainment, it was very entertaining to me because I was left my behind off through the entire movie because it's just turning everything on its head. I thought it was great. In that movie, are you supposed to hate pretty much everyone, like Succession? Like, we pretty much hate everyone in Succession. Is it kind of the same thing, except it's in the horror genre? Kind of. Not. I mean, the people that are the victims, like, some of them are presented as stereotypical yokels, but, like, particularly the one who ends up being the hero. Like, no, you're supposed to, she's ex-Navy SEAL or something. You know, she's, it's not like Succession. But I guess, yeah, since you brought up Succession... This is sort of the other side. We've got uh, poverty porn films, if we want to put it that way, of look how these people, which obviously will get to Squid Game. But if you're going to object to Squid Game, and it has, I didn't realize, like a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's really high. I think Squid Game is just an objectively really good show, though. It's really, 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 really good. And to be honest, I don't feel that bad about spoiling it. Like, hasn't everybody seen Squid Game? Like, anybody who would be inclined to watch Squid Game and listen to a podcast about Squid Game, they probably seen Squid Game. So I don't, I mean, spoil right, let's, the damn show. Let's spoil it within the next 10 minutes. But Sarah Lynn brought up Succession. That The other part of that, and we had the White Lotus was another recent one. There have been several that are just... I, I need to watch I that one. feelings about White Lotus. Making fun of the very rich. The other side of the terrible divide between rich and everybody else, or rich and very, very poor or whatever, is just 
how completely clueless, how completely spoiled and even screwed up like that. It's not even good for them. Succession. It's nicely three dimensional characters, all of whom are completely miserable as a result. Of, you know, I, I think that works very well. Yeah. And it's also just, there's so much crossover between, because I've been watching Succession and Squid Game actually at the same time. And I'm thinking, wow, we've got entitlement here. We've got dehumanization. We've got abuses of power. We've got competition. And uh, I think that they cover a lot of the same ground, but I've been (laughs) totally obsessed with Succession lately, along with everybody else. The entitlement alone everyone on that show is horrible. And it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or conservative or what have you. Anyone with power is horrible, basically. I would say that's the same message in White Lotus, but White Lotus like deeply bothered me. Like I found White Lotus harder to watch than Squid Game, even though like Squid Game is obviously a sadder, more tragic Thing. Do you want to set it up? Just at least say what the premise is for people. Set up the spoiler, right? I don't want to, I don't want to spoil where a squid game goes. You don't have to spoil white. Please don't spoil white lotus because I haven't seen that one yet. It's people at a hotel that are rich and they interact with like the help or, you know, a friend who's of color who is with one of the rich families. And so some of the dynamic has to do with that. There's multiple characters. It's very, very multi-threaded, very HBO. You know, like they have a lot of these shows that are very like, let us bring you this cast of characters and then take you through these cascading ways that they intertwine. This doesn't spoil it, but the message at the end of White Lotus is just so nihilistic to me. Like, it's just so like, well, and there you go. Like, it isn't like, here is this commentary so that we can maybe change it or maybe this person gets what's coming to them or maybe we can even be sad about this. It's just kind of like, and that's how it is, is sort of the message at the end of it to me that is in some ways just so much more, I mean, nihilistic than even some of this other stuff that is so dark. I feel like White Lotus bothered me more than even these more like horror violent versions of class commentary. It felt like a really modern upstairs, downstairs, but I don't think that there's ever been an upstairs, downstairs in all of its iterations that has veered from that message, Michelle. I think it's always come to the same conclusion. Downton Abbey, yes, the same thing. It's just that that has such an ongoing soap opera quality that, you know, it has to pick a lot of different things to pick on. Of like, now we're going to have our first black character and we're going to have a thing about the injustice in... 1912 or whatever the hell is happening, you know, 1918 about that. It's more complicated, whereas White Lotus is like, just bang, this is a picture of some people and the stuff that happens to them over a week. And, you know, that is at least a, has to be a self-contained message in a way that it doesn't have to, and it shouldn't in a longer running show. Apparently I need to watch this show. But one of the things that I'm really fascinated about Succession, because I've watched it, I, I watch it and I'm obsessed with it as well, but all those people are just terrible. Like they're terrible people. Like, just bad, like horrible people. And I don't understand why we are so invested in them and and why we care. Because how do I say this? Because I'm trying not to spoil it. All right. So there is a person who's making a power move and they're trying to do something with the company. And it was recently kind of come out that we learned that if they were to sell their shares, they would get like, what, billions of dollars, like $5 billion, $2 billion, an obscene amount of money. And so they will be fine no matter what. Like if they were to leave the company, they will be perfectly fine, set up for life. Their kids, grandkids, grandkids, grandkids will be good for life. But yet we're so invested in who wins. I don't understand why we like it so much. And I like it. I don't understand why I like it. Like, I don't know why it appeals to me. I don't know why these horrible human beings, I enjoy spending so much time with them. And I care about Kendall so much. Like, what is wrong with me, guys? (laughs) (laughs) What is wrong with you, Lawrence? I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I care about Kendall too. I find myself moved by that character sometimes. <laughs> he's horrible too. And Shabon is horrible. And everybody's horrible. The only good person there is Greg. And people like all oh, crap on Greg. Like they're all horrible human beings. And Greg's kind of a jerk too. I don't know. It's all, it's all bad. So White Lotus sets up all these characters as horrible, right? They're all these rich bastards. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, even though it's not that long, I think they actually flesh them out enough so that you have some sympathy with every single one of them. And I think Succession is doing the same thing. It's just taking maybe longer to do it that the other brother, Roman, obviously despicable character. But by this point, I think it's just a matter of like taking the screen time that if they'd spent the screen time that they had on Kendall, then no. you, would, you would feel no. something for this guy. No, no. <laughs> Roman is evil. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you today, Mark? Mark, you have the worst takes 
I've ever heard in my entire life. He today. was abused. Like, he was I abused. He's, he's his, his PTSD from his childhood. Roman is horrible. <laughs> he's a horrible human being. But I will say that Michelle, she gave you a look when you said that. What was that look all about, Michelle? Shane, you think Shane has sympathy by the end? Because I have zero. I, I don't remember it. characters' names in White Lotus anymore. The so. worst one. The guy who's there, <laughs> the, the newlywed, the man and the newlywed couple. Yeah, by the end, you kind of realize this is somebody who's like very spoiled. Yeah, he's like a character off of Succession, that he's super spoiled. A lot of it's about his relationship with his new bride, who he doesn't treat very... He's basically like, you're a trophy wife, and you knew you got married to be a trophy wife. Give up your career. How dare you try to work anymore? Like, it's, I, don't, I had no sympathy for Shane. I'll let listeners decide whether... Because I felt like... It is that, but it's also a super self-aware, like, I want to communicate one soul, my soul to your soul. Like, and even though it's profoundly clueless about the power dynamics involved, there's a side that's so earnest that there's something that balances out with the objective assholeness of the character and rudeness and entitlement. All right, before we turn our attention totally to Squid Game, let's have some ads. And I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to my ad readings. You can instead support the show either through patreon.com slash pretty much pop, or if you're using the Apple Podcasts app right now, just push that subscribe button. It'll charge you a little money and you'll immediately have ad-free versions of these, as well as for every episode, the extra after show talking, which on this episode in particular is very, very good. So please consider even a $1 a month contribution, which through Patreon will get you all that stuff. I want to tell you about ZocDoc. Because when you notice that something is wrong in your body, you should have a doctor looking at that right away, not in a few days, a few weeks. Well, here is a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. So it is a search engine. You tell them where you are. You tell them what kind of doctor you want. You could be looking for a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, other specialist. ZocDoc has all the options covered. You put in your insurance information. You do not want to show up to a doctor and find out they don't take your insurance. So then you're going to see a list of doctors. You're going to see their ratings, reviews. You're going to see what other patients have said about this doctor so you can get the best care available. Then right in the app is not just a search engine. You can book an appointment. Could be in person, could be video chat. So you're not calling receptionist, waiting on hold. So check out the interface. It is great. I've used it to get an eye doctor appointment. Millions of people every month use ZocDoc. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. I also want to tell you about Bespoke Post. This winter, upgrade your daily routine with Bespoke Post and their new seasonal lineup of must-have Box of Awesome Collections. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. From winter cocktails, cozy threads, and camping gear essentials, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. So what you do is you go to boxofawesome.com and you take a quiz that allows them to choose the right Box of Awesome for you. And there are so many cool options. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. So, for instance, right now, the Alpine Box. It's the Peak Twill CPO Jacket, based on a jacket originally worn by chief petty officers in the U.S. Navy. Or the Stealth Box, which is a tactical-grade opening knife, a 7-in-1 tool pen, a stealth money clip, and a key capsule for putting cash, meds, and other small items in. So the pattern here is that every box is a curated, cool set of stuff that would be too hard for me to pick out. They're a cool treat for you, a cool gift for someone else. There are boxes designed specifically with women in mind. Each box costs only $45, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. So again, Bespoke will suggest a box for the month. You will preview that. You will decide whether you want to buy it. You can skip any time. You could skip multiple months. You could skip all the months if you want. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code PRETTY at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code PRETTY for 20% off your first box. Finally, as we head into the new year, you should maybe think about how much debt you're racking up. If you're carrying a credit balance for month after month, you can feel like you're never going to get out. Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. 
Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off all your debt with a personal loan all online. Credit consolidation can be a really good idea for lots of people. I have done it in the past. Of course, you want to research your various options. I'm hoping that you will look into Upstart as one of those options. Upstart knows that you're more than just your credit score, is expanding access to affordable credit. And unlike other lenders, they consider your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate checking, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000, and you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. Maybe instead of entering yourself into a squid game. But let's get back to talking about that. Let's switch it to squid game. And I'm going to throw out that I found it. I enjoyed it by episode three or whatever. Of course, I was hooked. Of course, I watched it. It almost ruined it for me how bad the English overdubbing was for the... Mm -hmm. I assume it's overdubbing and that's not what the Korean people saw. Or maybe they saw somebody that they found to speak English and they were watching subtitles. And maybe you don't know. This actually made me think, maybe the Korean actors are terrible. Just I don't speak Korean, so I can't spot that their line readings are awful because the guys that they got to do the American line readings were community theater level bad. So bad. Were they really? I don't watch those kind of shows uh, dubbed. I'm an anime guy, so I really, really like the original language. I just read the subtitles. Sorry, no, I, I watched it with subtitles. It's just when they have actual, at the end, these sort of, evil masked characters that are watching them. Uh-huh. They introduce these characters in it, like episode seven and everything that came out of their mouths. I found unconvincing and just grating. And I, I never thought we were supposed to be convinced by them. I, I thought they were supposed to be like objectively kind of cartoonishly evil. Like, Cause I, I found them to be bracing as well and grating as well, but that didn't bother me because I was so engrossed by the show that like I just kind of went along with it. Yeah, that was my take, too, that like, I mean, and it could have just been these are the actors we found and this is how they speak. But they were so cartoonish to me in their villainy that I was like, yeah, OK, so you also are kind of this veneer of Americanness or whatever, right, is just sort of dripping over you. But overall, I, I found it sensationalist and cheesy in a way that rubbed me the wrong way. I had some of those questions that we raised about why. Like with the torture porn kind of thing, am I a bad person for sitting through, especially with the, just watching the first episode? I'm like, you know, if I just saw a movie that was about this guy with a gambling problem and that was it, I would not have thought that was a good movie. <laughs> and just sitting through the first of the action scenes before you sort of get into it. And they, I really like the fact that in the second episode, they all go home. That you get yes, this balance yeah, again. If too. it had just been in the games, it had just been the Hunger Games from that point forward, I just would have thought this was cheesy and least common denominator and just not much redeeming about it. You know what? You said that article about where they described the concept of Han. That really clarified a lot for me because I had some problems with from the beginning. And I have a problem with premieres anyway. I always think that they're kind of, they can often be the least strong of the bunch. But once I read that article about what Han meant, you know, as this deep kind of despair, this powerlessness, this helplessness, that all-encompassing word. I love that they have a word for that in Korean. And that made so much sense to me. I kind of watched the show from, and I only got through episode five, I have to admit, but that actually kind of explained a lot of their behaviors in the show. And I felt like I got it on a deeper level than otherwise. So wait a minute, Mark, did you like the show? Overall, yes. I mean, I definitely like it was good enough for me to watch for sure. And I will watch the next season, but it's sort of a guilty pleasure. I don't think it was anything near like get out level. No, it was not like Parasite. Parasite, I thought was a a masterwork. I didn't think this was anything close to that. Just in terms of sheer storytelling, movie making kind of. Go ahead, Michelle. What do you think? I liked it. I was impressed with the pacing. I think that that's something that I often struggle with with these kinds of like where the action is all in the horror and the violence and but they did take the time to like send them home and like show these moments that were that slowed it down in ways that I found I thought the, the editing was done really well and I also was I don't know if we're at 
can we spoil it yet territory? But yes. I was, yes, we're at, we're at that point. Okay. Well, wait a minute. I don't know. So like Sarah Lynn hasn't finished it. So, like, oh, she's yeah. standing in I for the audience. I for myself. I, I already read what happens in all the episodes. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. You know, the main character is going to win. Come on. Like, <laughs> well, so that's actually the point that I was going to say is that I the felt didn't, well, okay, keep going. I'm sorry. Keep okay. going. Sounds like there's going to be a second season. <laughs> I felt like I was being emotionally manipulated, obviously, and that I just kind of allowed it. Right. Like, like that, I was like, okay, I'm letting you tell me which characters I should be rooting against. Like, you know, like, oh, yes, I certainly hope that you lose in the next game, but you won't because I'm going to need to hope that you lose for the, the whole season. So I know you're going to survive. Like, just kind of how those conventions were being played with and sometimes not held up in a way that was surprising and interesting. I guess if I have any complaints about it, it's just that I knew what it was doing to me and I couldn't stop it, right? Like I was like, oh, they've got me and I'm just, I'm along for the ride. Like, Okay, so I love the show. Like I like unabashedly love the show because it mixes all of the stuff that I absolutely love. It was great pacing, great acting by the main character, like the the American people were trash, but that's fine. Great direction. I thought the great direction was wonderful. I thought it was a brilliant idea to take this well-worn kind of Asian trope and to kind of modernize it a little bit. There's a legitimate reason why it was number one in the world for so long. Like it was number one so long. And I think that the reason why is because it does all these things well. It has a little bit of a twist in there. And then I thought that the mixture of the characters played well off each other because so there's people who hook up at certain areas and then they kind of fall out and then there's like payback and like I thought it was a wonderful show. Now, as far as the social commentary goes, I mean... Yes, yes. Let's get on that because we could disagree about the aesthetics but yeah. the social commentary... The social commentary, no. Uh, but to be honest, I don't know if I'm the audience that it should work for because maybe there's something going on in Korea that I'm just not a part of and so maybe it hit with them very deeply in the same way to like get out with hit with us very deeply, but it maybe get out wouldn't hit with them very deep. You see what I'm saying? So maybe there's something going on where it would hit deeply. So for me, I'm going into it with an appreciation for the setup, the appreciation for the horror stuff, the appreciation for like tug of war and how twisted tug of war was. And you know, that's stuff that I appreciated, but the social commentary maybe just missed me because I'm not the audience for it. But even if we weren't the intended audience, we certainly, I mean, became a huge portion of the audience that responded to it. So, I mean, like, there were kids in the Halloween costumes, although, like, I mean, it, it certainly... It was everywhere. Just was a cultural moment. So it has to be resonating. I mean, I would imagine that the social commentary has to be resonating in some way for it to have taken hold that fully. Oh, for sure. Wasn't there was uh, some statistic in one of the articles about that 70% of South Korea has a bachelor's degree, has college. And yet they still have all of this, you know, student debt, you know, mortgage, you know, they have all of this debt that they can't seem to get out from under. And we're seeing that obviously here. I mean, the characters themselves, it didn't seem like the show had a judgment about what kind of debt they had, you know, which I liked. I liked that. That's a good point. We can root for somebody who has a gambling problem. I mean, it's, you know, that's a disease. We can root for somebody who needs to figure out a way to find your family again. You know, there are things that in that show, we weren't there to judge how they got there. It was their behavior once they got into the game. I think one of the things that the show is trying to say is that it doesn't matter how we get there because kind of we all are there. Because whether it be student loan debt, whether it be mortgages, whatever, un unless you're part of the really, really elite, you probably got some kind of debt. And so it doesn't matter how you get there, you're there. And depending upon the circumstances of your life, it could get really, really dire really quickly. Perhaps you lose a job, perhaps COVID hits and you were in a service industry and, and you know your industry goes down, whatever it is, like you can get there. And so one of the things that I really appreciated, I guess maybe I was the intended audience, one of the things that I really appreciated was that you're right, that it didn't judge their debt. And then oftentimes we have this thing where we do judge people's debt. So we'd have less sympathy for someone who has a gambling problem than someone who maybe lost their job. And I don't think that we should be that way. And the show wasn't that way. The show, it gave you glimpses of what was going on with them, but it didn't go too deep. Because it, the point was that they were in debt and they were in such dire straits that they felt that they had to do this in order to kind of get out of it. And I thought that was a brilliant move by the show. I thought it was really, really well done. With the exception of debt through corporate malfeasance, I don't think they were trying to get you to yeah, sympathize with that yeah. guy. <laughs> that's true. But he was a villain anyway. And the games, 
at least the earliest ones, were set up in such a way that you went from more individualistic to more collectivist for how you had to solve them. I did not notice that. That's a good point. That's yeah, a that's a point. great point. Like red light, green light, it's just you, right? Except for that we see the guy who chose to act out and help, but that wasn't part of the game. And then as the games went on, you know, like tug of war, you have to literally work as a team. And then eventually you become adversaries, like where you can't both win the Marvel game, right? And so I feel like it was intentionally arced through those. It's a very good point. And that was also about kind of pitting people against each other, which is what we do anyway. You know, it's that sense of competition. It's pitting people who should be on the same side against each other. We're fighting the wrong people. And we do that here. We do that everywhere. That's a global problem. Well, and the illusion of always still having the same side, at any point you all can vote. And if the majority says, yes, we can stop, like that illusion of having a solidarity option. And then the way that they like took that option and then came back was just gut-wrenching. I think maybe we're even supposed to sympathize, maybe not with the American rich, but with the final guy who is revealed as being rich, that I won't quite spell out how that works for spoiler purposes, but, and the guy who is, as I mentioned, insider trading or some sort of corporate malfeasance is that's how he got in debt. A very common theme in other Asian media that I've seen is just what a completely high pressure situation it is. And just how someone that then does stuff that's illegal or, you know, whatever stuff that's extreme to try to meet the expectations of excellence like that is something that the audience there would understand as well. Even if it seems like there's a speech at the end of like, oh, well, if you're too rich, you've seen it all. There's nothing you basically you're faced with ennui. You know, you're faced with nihilism. And so like even the spectators of the games are sort of victims in a way. They're victims of affluenza or something. And I don't know. Did, did you guys feel like that was actually something we were supposed to have any sympathy for? Just the fact that there was a philosophical justification for it at all impressed me. I mean, it's just like we brought up with succession. There's like no reason Lawrence brought it up. There's no reason why if you're going to get a payout and you want to stay in the game, at that point, it's not about money. It's something else. It's about winning. Winning and what's in common with the Korean or maybe Japanese. I don't know. But, you know, it seems like this is being enough in the eyes of your parents. It's edible stuff. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, if succession did not have the family element to it and it was just that, well, I guess that would be, uh, man, there's another a Showtime show, Billions. Billions, yeah. I think that's what makes Succession so good is that it is the family mixed with the business because really they are trying to get into a good position with the business, but really what they're trying to do, they're trying to like either come up into their father, earn their father's love, earn their father's respect. Like th there's this familial thing with Succession that makes it unique. And I think that's part of the reason why I latched on to it so deeply because the business, I'm not a business guy. Like, I don't care about business. Like when my friends start talking about business, I tune out because I don't care about that kind of stuff. But the family side, I'm, I'm an only child, but I do know families. And so the family side of it does kind of appeal to me. I think that's the reason why the, the show Succession kind of appeals to me so much. And that's also getting back to Squid Game, why I really connected to, I do not want to butcher his name. I don't know his name, but the main guy, like the main guy who colors his hair at the end, that guy. <laughs> the reason why I connect to him so much is because he had this daughter and that really kind of got to me. Same thing with the female, the main female protagonist, the one who dies later, like the last woman who dies, whatever. And the reason why she connected to me because there's something going on with her family. Like that's part of what these shows do is they kind of give this overlay of family and it's a deep, meaningful kind of connection, kind of lets you know that these are not just people in vacuums, that there is stuff that kind of reverberates out. So when you're in debt, you're not just in debt by yourself. It affects your family. It affects your children. It affects their lives. It affects their possibilities. And so the main guy, the reason why he does it is not so much for himself. That's selfish. He does it because he cares about his daughter. And that's really effective to me because that's something that I would see myself doing if I was in a situation you know, God forbid, but I might enter the Squid Games because I'm concerned about my children's well-being in the future. So these are things that kind of stick, that they stick into the show. But if it's done poorly, you laugh at it, you kind of don't care about it. But if, but if it's done well, like Secession and Squid Game do, it really connects you to the characters in a significant kind of way. And so when people die, it really, really affects you. And the other thing that I think 
that emotional connection on top of sort of this desperation that comes out of that emotional connection, it really lays bare the zero-sum game nature of it, right? And you see that in the early part of the game. They're like, okay, well, we'll just earn enough money. And then those of us who make it will get all this money. But like, you know, there's only one of you making it out of there. By the end of like the first game, you know that only one of you is leaving. But they kind of just keep up this like, we can be a team message because what else are you going to do, right? Like how else are you going to keep yourself going through the next day and go to sleep thinking that you're safe, right? There's this kind of necessity to it and this brutality to it that feels like a critique on capitalism that is just so Mm -hmm. hard to watch, right? Like, because what options do you have? You don't have like an opt out at that point, right? So it's all about telling yourself the story so that you can literally go to sleep at night knowing that, well, my team is watching over me, I hope for tonight, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely, it's a critique on what capitalism is. (laughs) And I think about with Logan, the head guy on on, uh, The Father in Succession is, he is self-made, right? He's the only one actually, I think in the the show right now, who's a self-made billionaire. He created the company from the ground up, whereas all of his children have been born into this obscene wealth and they have zero tools for real life. They do not know how to function in the real life. I mean, one of Kendall can't even drive, you know, he has to ride on the back of a motorcycle in order to look cool. You know, (laughs) it's like, and none of them can relate to anyone in the real world. And with, when you take a look at Squid Game, again, it's that zero sum game. It's who's going to make it out on top. There's only going to be one. What you just said just made me think about Shit's Creek and its popularity so much which I know is like the extreme opposite, but it might be tapping into the same cultural moment of like wanting some sort of alternative to like, who's going to come out on top? Because it was the same kind of like, these people have no skills, right? They have nothing that they can do in a practical world. I mean, literally they can't even fold cheese into macaroni and cheese, right? Like they, they cannot function. And so as soon as you took away the wealth, they were left completely incompetent. But then watching them kind of build those relationships and the skills. And that's when we're like, everybody is okay. Like it isn't a zero sum game that they do like raise each other up and the people around them up. I think that that's why that story was so popular and got so many people invested in it. And it is just sort of not one we see much in real life or in fiction. If you can get past the first episode or two on that one, because that's one that I tried watching with my family. And they just saw the unappealing characters right at the beginning and like, no, 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 they humanized them. In fact, pretty damn quickly, like by the end of the first season, you know, the very short seasons, it's just the style of humor that you have to be okay with. And you have to be okay with everybody. You know, there's something that is brave about a show that, I don't know, maybe it's just a stylistic thing. I don't, maybe it's not a moral virtue, but that they don't feel like the characters have to suck up to you and sort of appeal to you in a traditional way that we can write a character whether it's because you want to make it more three-dimensional or because you just want to use rude humor or something <laughs> that, you know, you just got to be prepared to take that and say, my relationship to what is entertaining me doesn't have to be either these are people that are pleasant to be around or these are people that I identify with or, or preferably be both. For the record, I've never seen Shit's Creek, so I don't know anything about this. But that was not my kind of show. It's about now, about how we are all of a sudden, we're very suspicious of that pull yourself up by your bootstraps message that we got like in the 80s with like trading places and working girl and and movies like that. If you work hard enough, you know, it'll be hard, but you can do it. And that's what the dream is. And we have a very defined, you know, a very clear pro lots of money, you know, dream that we all sh- should be sharing when that's actually not true. And I love that shows like Schitt's Creek actually resonated today because I think we've got public figures like Bernie Sanders and, you know, people who are telling us that maybe that we shouldn't have billionaires. Maybe we shouldn't be wanting that. What is the end game? It's, it's not about who has the biggest pile of money at the end. It's, that's pretty empty. And we're seeing that again with succession. I, I don't want any of those lives. Those, they look so miserable. I, I do not want that. I'm fine, you know, teaching at a community college and coming home and doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're getting a kind of we're in the we're in the home stretch here. Do we think that we're we're throwing a lot of properties around 
Maybe it's like advertising that you see an individual commercial and you're like, that's not going to convince anybody to buy anything. Like, it's just annoying. In fact, it makes me hate the brand because you're singing the brand's name and you're showing this purposefully manipulative imagery. But it is getting the message in your head. So they hope that at least when you're considering to buy that brand or the generic or something you've never heard of, that you might at least default to their thing. And maybe this is kind of, you know, no matter how over the top, obviously there aren't real people in a squid game, hopefully. It's super exaggerated. I'm not sure whether succession is exaggerated in the same way. I'm not sure whether White Lotus, you know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous are a mystery to me. So I don't really know. We can imagine. But, you know, even if these things are overdone and you feel like they're manipulating you or they're just not realistic enough to make a social point, still it erodes the overall faith in an audience that is open to this in capitalism, at least, you know, in this sort of capitalism that results in this extremes of wealth disparity. It did enough to make Ben Shapiro throw a fit about it. So it had to have mm. been making some kind of <laughs> commentary. I don't know. They he, throw a fit about a lot of stuff. That's true. Like, that's cat true. in their hat. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but he was like, this is a communist message. And I, I don't think it is a communist message, but that was certainly the... They didn't have nice things to say about North Korea in Squid Game, right? That's right. even worse. It's just that the irony of like, oh, you escaped North Korea. Now you're home free. Oh, no, it sucks here, too. It just sucks in a different way. <laughs> Great. Have we said enough about the thesis? Anybody? I kind of opened up with this, like, what is it asking me to do as a viewer? What is it asking viewers to do, right? If it is some kind of commentary, is it rhetorical? Is it trying to make me take action? And I think I come ultimately to know because there isn't an action that I as an individual viewer can take. So I think it might be more just a like trying to move the zeitgeist kind of thing, right? Like just trying to change the cultural temperature a bit rather than try to spur its viewers into some kind of action. Because like, what can I sitting in my living room watching this show go and do afterwards with my frustration with the system? Not much, right? And so I don't think that they are rhetorical pieces in the way that like a protest song about a very specific thing is to try to go and get you take to take some kind of specific action. Maybe I'm just feeling jaded and that's not accurate, but I think that's where I'm landing. Yeah, the story of the hurricane, the Bob Dylan song, that was like a very specific story about somebody that was still in jail for something that he hadn't done. And I think it actually had real world effects. Yeah, it did. It did. Although I do think, so let me get philosophical here for a second. What I do think that it's trying to do is move the zeitgeist or to put it in a little bit different way. Maybe people are just so dead, meaning like they're just kind of, they're walking through life and not really paying attention to the, the things around them to kind of shape their lives. And it's simply just trying to open their eyes to it. So I remember there used to be like, documentaries that I would watch, like Invisible Children or something back in the day. And at the end, it'd be like, if you want to get involved, go to this website, blah, blah, blah. And I remember when I was younger and I was dumber, I'd be like, oh man, I'm going to go get involved and go to this website and make a difference and make the world a better place. And I'm sure that what I did did nothing. And that's not what Get Out is trying to do. That's not what Squid Game is trying to do. That's not what Succession is trying to do. I don't know, Shits Creek, I don't I haven't seen that show, but I'm going I'm to guess it's not what that show is trying to do. It's just simply trying to like open your eyes to what's happening, right? So that you're paying attention to what's happening, to what's going on around you. So many people are just bought into the system. It's all about trying to make it to the next day or trying to get ahead or trying to become those millionaires. You don't have a problem with the fact they're billionaires. You want to be one of them, right? And so instead of allowing you to kind of sleepwalk through life, it's trying to kind of make you be aware of what's happening around you so that maybe you may not like go to a website and sign a document or something like that, but at least you're aware of it. And you're thinking about it. And of course, I'm a philosopher, but I think that that is its own value. I think there's something important about that. I think it's important to look at things through those kinds of lenses. I think it's important to have a fully examined life, not just a partially one, but nevertheless, I think it's important to do so. And so I'm joking, Mark, kind of. But nevertheless, I think it's important to be aware of the way that the systems around you kind of control your life. And I think that Squid Game, while it is entertaining and while it does have those horror kind of elements to it. The best whore do that. They live. It did that. 
Halloween in its own way. It does that. It opens your eye to kind of some of the things that might be mundane to you. And I think that that is something valuable. It's something that, that is worth exploring and, and worth going back to. This is all making me want to see a remake of Schitt's Creek where it's the actual characters from Succession who lose their wealth and get put <laughs> in this. They would not be as nice and communicative and understanding as the characters. Uh, Sarah Lynn, any last thoughts? You know, it's really just sort of a, an echo of Lawrence and Michelle, but I think that you can't have, you know, a call to action if you don't know that there's a problem to begin with. And so if you, if well you don't well recognize someone else's humanity, which I think that in a lot of ways that we don't, especially if we're kind of dead to our own experience, we're dead to other people's experience. If we're not self-aware in that way, there's no action that you can take. So the first step is really to be aware that we have a problem, which I think is where we are right now with television shows and, and the novels and the music that we're listening to. I think it's that for now. It's not a call to action. Not yet. We're not ready. I think that's really smart. I really agree with that. And I think that that explains some of that kind of like the fishbowl horror, like let's all show that this is orchestrated because that lays the groundwork for saying like, well, if somebody put this into action, then somebody can put it into different action, right? Some, if somebody constructed this, then somebody, we can deconstruct it. And so I think it is laying the groundwork to show that we're not as powerless as we feel. Mark, I'm very pleased with how philosophical this conversation has gotten. I'm very happy with with where we are. I've not heard a take like in the Saw franchise of like, Jigsaw, you went out and made a difference in those people's <laughs> lives. If you could do something that great, then you could, you could do something good minute, for them. Wait, no, he kind of did. Like, he had a reason for the stuff that he was doing. It was gruesome, but he had a reason for why he was doing it. I will true. say this though. I want to make you appreciate your life. I will say this really quickly. That Mark, you're wrong when it comes to music, sir. You're wrong. When you look at NWA, when you look at Wu-Tang, when you look at Fight the Power and Public Enemy, sir, those songs matter, sir. There is going to be a uh, social commentary songs episode sometime in the spring. So we'll we need to see what we happens on it. that. And you better invite me. You better bring me back for this. All right. Well, man, this was a, a real power uh, panel here. Thanks to all of you for showing up. And thanks for the listeners. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.